What happens when you take a redneck fishing guide and pair him up with a master beekeeper? Well, we're about to find out. Join our host Ken Milam and John Swan as they help you brave the sting of beekeeping to reap the sweet rewards. This is The Hive Jive. Well, hello everybody. Or as Ken would say, howdy family. <laughs> Speaking of Mr. Ken, he is suspiciously absent this morning. And uh, I have no explanation for that. So you're stuck with me for this exact little moment in time here. And, uh, you know, luckily, April Fool's Day was last Thursday. So we dodged a bullet there. So there's no, uh, you know, like little hit, hidden tricks or anything in this episode. And Easter Sunday has just passed. And technically, I think today is uh, referred to as Easter Monday. So happy Easter, everybody. This is the first episode for the month of April, and just to kind of go back through and do some recaps on everything here. For those of you up north, you've been hammered with an additional set of snowstorms here as of late, and as you move further south in the U.S., obviously things are starting to get warmer, and we've got some flowers blooming, and it is just a about perfect timing right now for our beekeeping, which is amazing. Hopefully the season actually continues to do well and everything blooms and we have a plentiful nectar flow, but that is still yet to be seen. What I have seen out there though at the moment is that the bees are bringing in plenty of pollen. All of the colonies, when I go through and I do the inspections, they're all bringing in tons of pollen. Anybody in this area that I know of that has been doing any of the supplemental like dry pollen substitute feeding, the bees are ignoring it at this point. There's plenty of natural pollen out there and they do prefer that natural source. So bringing in excess pollen and having a ton of it there means that they can raise a ton of brood. And it also means that colonies that overwintered and still came out with a lot of capped food stores, such as honey, actually would see themselves as being resource rich at the moment. Those are your colonies that are going to immediately jump into brood production and jump into drone production. And those drones were very key. If you remember a few episodes back, we discussed how having a lot of drones at this point in time is going to be key to deciding when to go through and do your splits and when to start raising queens. And when we did that episode, that was towards the beginning of March. And for us in Central Texas, we went through and we hypothetically estimated that around March 17th, which would have been St. Patrick's Day, would have been the best time for us, well, not best, but the soonest time that we could start raising queens and have those queens ready to do splits. And then fast forward, you know, 16 days forward to where your queen's emerging, and then she's going to go out and she's going to do her mating flights and all that. Well, that would put you right now, right at the beginning of April. And if you haven't done those splits yet, or you haven't started raising queens, by this point, for the southern states, there are plenty of drones out there. All of the colonies that I have checked have adult drones in them, and they have a lot of drone brood in them as well. So there's plenty of drones going to be out there flooding those drone congregation areas. So if you want to go back and check out that episode and kind of get the timing and the math and all that right, please feel free to do so. And then you can take that and you can move forward and start raising your own queens if that's something that you wanted to do this season. We have had episodes in the past where we did discuss raising queens specifically, and we might touch on that again here in a future episode. Just a few little teasers as well of future episodes coming up. We are going to have the next episode coming up next Monday. 
we're going to be discussing splits and we're going to be discussing nucleus colonies as a resource hive. So that will be coming up here shortly. And then we will also be doing an interview with Miss Tara Chapman. You've heard us tease that a couple of times. So that's going to be on the way. And those will both be full of information for everybody out there to go through and utilize towards your beekeeping this spring and growing your colonies and having a few extra little resources and tricks in your pocket there to kind of help supplement things along the way. A few other things to note right now, especially since how the colonies are in that initial growth phase and, and burst of life inside there, is to make sure that they do have enough incoming resources. Now, we discussed that they're bringing in a ton of pollen, but as everybody now should know, you know, the other half of that is nectar. They need that carbohydrate source. So go out there when you're doing your inspections, be looking inside the comb. And if you're not feeding your bees, there's, there's a key trick here, obviously. If you're not feeding your bees with any type of sugar syrup and you're not stimulating them artificially on your own, when you go through and you do your inspection and you look inside your comb, you should be able to see open liquid, wet cells inside there that contain shiny little pools of liquid. That is a great indication that the bees are finding something out there in their natural environment and they're bringing that into the colony. So when you're going through and you're doing your inspections, if you're looking at colonies and the colonies still have multiple combs of capped honey left over from winter, they're more than likely just fine. You don't necessarily need to feed that colony unless you are purposely just trying to go through and stimulate earlier brood production and get things going. If you do that, though, do keep in mind they've already got a lot of capped food stores which are taking up space inside the colony. And if you give them an overabundance of available liquid in the form of like a sugar syrup, they will take that and they will store that in their cells. And the more of it they store in their cells, the less cells the queen has to go through and actually lay her eggs and develop the colony and get the colony growing and have that nice big influx of brood on the way. So you always want to do that little fine line kind of tight wire walk there with your feeding. So you want to make sure that you're just feeding one quart at a time and no more than two quarts a week. And you should be balancing that by doing your inspections and making sure that when you feed them the quart, that not only did they just drain the container, because they're going to do that immediately. They're going to pull it out of the container and put it into the comb. You want to make sure that they're actually utilizing it from the comb where they're taking it and they're turning it into brood food and feeding the babies and mixing it in with the bee bread and all of the stuff that you want them to be doing as opposed to just occupying cell space, which at this point in time is vital for the raising and production of new brood. So if you're going through and you're doing your inspections and you look inside the colony and you've got those multiple comb of capped honey, again, you're probably good. If you've got multiple comb of capped honey and you see open liquid in the cells, you don't need to be feeding that colony whatsoever. Any of my colonies that have multiple combs right now that already still have capped food stores in them, I'm letting them do their own thing because the more of those food stores they burn through, it's a win-win. One, they're utilizing their own natural food source. And two, they're freeing up additional space where the queen can lay more brood and the brood nest can continue to expand. So allowing them to go through and utilize that is a benefit at this point in time. And it will save you a few little bucks if you don't have to go buy all the sugar and make sugar feed and go feed them if there's not enough nectar in your area. However, on the flip side of all of that, if you go through and you're looking inside your colony and you're finding that they are very low on capped food stores or have none at all, and you notice that all of the cells are dry, there's no open liquid to be found anywhere inside there, then that is your key right there that that colony is in desperate need of some help. And that's a colony that would be a prime candidate to go through and feed that colony 
help bolster them up and get them going and allow them to have, again, enough resources coming in that they can raise brood and do what they need to. And maybe even as the colony gets bigger and stronger, start drawing out some new wax for you, but not so much food that they start capping it. This early spring season, when you're working up towards the the main nectar flow for your region, what you do not ever want to have are your bees having so much access to sugar syrup that they're taking it and immediately storing it inside their comb and then leaving it in there as capped food stores. Because if they do that, then when the nectar flow hits, they're not going to go back and uncap that sugar syrup and they're not going to utilize it first. They're going to leave it because now there's a bounty of their natural food source coming in. They're going to take that. They're going to also cap that and store that away. And then when it comes time to harvest, you're not actually going to know what is capped sugar syrup and what is not. So it's always better to go through and do that fine line, do that one quart at a time. If you're feeding them twice a week, say you feed them on Saturday and then you feed them again on Wednesday, that's perfectly fine so long as they're taking it and actually utilizing it, not just putting it inside that comb. But if you're going through and, and they're further out and, you know, like Ken's wanting to move his bees out to uh, Mason County and he only gets out there maybe once a month. So we did talk about, you know, giving them a gallon of sugar feed all at once because it's going to be four weeks before he goes back out there. Well, if you take that gallon and you break it down and you assume that he's feeding one to two quarts a week, that all kind of balances out to about the same for the given time of a month. But again, it's only because he's not there. If your colonies are nearby and you can get out there and you can do your management every five to seven days, it is very, very crucial to do that at this point in time of the year because not only are you checking the food stores, you're also doing an inventory to make sure that, yes, I've got drones. Yes, I've got lots of brood. Yes, I still have space and don't need to add anything yet or no, I don't. And I do need to add something. And you're monitoring the swarm urges of the colony because March through June, depending on your region, is the prime window for swarms when a colony is going to go through and do its reproductive split. And here in Central Texas, most of the colonies are already to that point. They're already in the mindset of it is time to reproduce and it's time to divide and go out there and make more colonies. So if you're doing your inspections on that five to seven day interval, you can go through and do these feedings as you need to. You can monitor to make sure they're not getting too much food or that they don't have enough food. But you can also monitor, are they getting ready to swarm? Are they starting to prep that urge? And if they are, then you can go through and have a better chance of being able to intervene in that process and stop them from swarming before it's too late, before it's out of hand or before you come to your colony because it's been two weeks. And at that point, oh, well, so there's all these capped queen cells and there's no eggs and there's no young larvae and my queen's nowhere to be found and she was my favorite queen and now she's gone and yeah so that's why you want to go through and actually kind of keep that in mind and make sure that you're staying on top of your management practices especially as spring ramps up and gets into full swing because that is very crucial on your beekeeping right now to make sure that you are maintaining the, the genetic quality that you want by keeping your queen around and worst case scenario maybe they are prepping to swarm and maybe you wanted another colony and you catch it soon enough you can take your original queen and do that split and move her over into the other colony and then you know that you still have those genetics on hand and you can mitigate the swarming and, and be able to keep those resources there for yourself. So you're doubling your amount of colonies instead of just losing those bees out into the natural environment. So again, those are just some reminders of little tidbits of things to be watching for at this point in time, things to have on your radar, things that you should be doing. All of those are kind of just teasers. We will talk about them more in depth as the month of April rolls on. But 
Speaking of things going out into the natural environment, though, it is the first Monday of the month, and that means it is time for another natural beekeeping segment. So let's switch over now to Miss Natalie and see what we have in store on that natural beekeeping track. It's time to be mindful and take a more bee-centric look inside our hives. Welcome to the Natural Beekeeping Corner with our host, Natalie B. Hello, family. Bonjour, and welcome back to the Natural Beekeeping Corner on the Hive Jive. I'm your host, Natalie B, and I will be with you every first episode of the month for about 15 to 20 minutes to discuss why and how to keep your bees naturally and increase their chances of survival without exposing them to pesticides and treatments. I'd like to start by reminding you that in between episodes, if you have questions about the content, you can find me at b-mindful.com or join Les Carter himself and I every Thursday from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. Central U.S. time for our weekly Chat with the Mindful Beekeepers, which is a one-hour beekeeping question and answers um, where we answer all your questions live. Also, in each episode moving forward, I'll select one or two questions that I'll address for you on the segment. If you let me know, that's for the high chive, so don't hesitate to ask away. So, in the last segment, I mentioned I would explain a bit more what integrated pest management is and how it can help you keep your bees naturally and sustainably. And today we're going to do just that. This is such an important topic, however, that it will keep coming back throughout all future episodes. So for now, let me give you the general principles and an idea of what it entails, because it really is at the core of why natural beekeeping is so important for the health of your honeybees. And by the way, honeybees are animals that do deserve to be in good health. And to me, that means not exposing them to treatments or harsh conditions, but rather allowing them to follow their natural instincts and um, their nature for best results. So what is integrated pest management, you ask? Well, at its core, it's a pest management strategy that integrates a combination of tactics to reduce the impact of pest uh, populations and diseases as non-intrusively and as effectively as possible. It's often represented by a pyramid, a bit like the food pyramid, with five levels of intervention, and the base favoring prevention and the tip of it representing the most drastic and damaging levels of interventions. So level one is educational, level two is cultural, level three is mechanical, level four is biological, and level five is chemicals, in other words, treatments. Just like with the food pyramid, it's important to stay at the bottom levels of the pyramid and not flip it on its head by prophylactically and automatically applying treatments like too many beekeepers do, so that resistance to those treatments can be avoided. I would also say that propagating bees that need treatments on a regular basis or they will die is not sustainable. What we want is to propagate bees that do not rely on treatments instead. But you'll hear me say that a lot. So without further ado, in a nutshell, here's a basic summary of what each level entails. Level one is the educational level. In other words, the knowledge and understanding of honeybees as well as their pests and diseases. Being educated means you need to know the life cycle of the superorganism as well as that of its pests and diseases. For example, you need to know colonies follow cycles of expansion and contraction based on the seasons and forage. Expansion in periods of nectar flow, when the queen lays a ton of brood just before and as nectar starts to pick up, 
So the population increases dramatically just in time to harvest all those resources and store them in preparation for the cold, foodless months. Contraction in periods of dearth where the queen slows down or completely stops laying and the population dwindles. You also need to know the biology of each of the occupants of the hives and their main roles and function. By the way, a great resource for that is a book called The Biology of the Honeybee by Winston. It really explains the biology of the superorganism and the individuals it's made of, and I highly recommend reading it multiple times. Being knowledgeable means knowing what a healthy colony looks like and how it behaves depending on the seasons and the conditions, and what are the symptoms of issues and diseases so that you can intervene as early as possible before things get really bad. It starts with knowing what healthy brood looks like, what enough bees for the season looks like, and being able to read frames and colonies to assess its health and vigor. One thing that can help with that is having more than two or three colonies so that you can get used to what looks right and what doesn't. Another one is working with a mentor or participating in hands-on workshops. But it also means learning and educating yourself on the life cycle, causes, and symptoms of the main pests and diseases of the honeybees, such as varomites, falbroids, nosema, all that stuff, as well as what are the signs of a failing poor or poor queen are. A good publication to read for that is the title Honeybee Diseases and Pests by the Canadian Association of Professional Apiculturists. And you can find that at kappabees.com, C-A-P-A, kappabees.com. By the way, Dr. Tarpey's research shows that the number of one cause of colony failure is not varomites, it's actually the queen, which can be inbred, poorly mated, poor quality, or simply not locally adapted and or treated. Which brings us to level two, cultural control, which also deals with sanitation, by the way. First and foremost, that level means good local queens, because local queens do better than queens from different states or regions, as they're more adapted to the local cycles of weather and forage. Also, preferably queens from survivor stock, meaning untreated stock, as treated bees do not qualify as survivor stock since they don't usually do well or survive without their medication, because they will be more resilient and won't depend on treatments to survive and thrive, which is not sustainable. Queens that leverage hybrid vigor over inbreeding depression, which makes for a more adaptable, more resilient colony. Too many commercially available queens are inbred through generations of raising queens from the same few lines in an area that lacks diversity. This um, level also means natural comb for natural cell size, because first, natural comb allows for better communication for the superorganism through vibrations that are otherwise muffled on foundation. And since bees use vibration-based communication for many things, the most important of which is to let their sister know where good food sources are, that matters. And second, um, natural cell size means bees get to build to their needs and optimize their nest configuration with the seasons and flows of resources, while artificial cells tend to impose um, one-size-fits-all that prevents the colony from functioning optimally. And when it comes to standard foundation with artificially enlarged cells, um, development times under capping are typically longer, giving more time for varomites to increase their populations. So that matters as well. Uh, that's a problem that's actually too often ignored and that seems to be contributed to high mite loads in our experience. Another recommended strategy at this cultural slash sanitation level 
is old comb culling, meaning cycling out the old dark comb out of the brood's nest and eventually out of the hive, generally on a three-year cycle for optimal results, instead of keeping it in there indefinitely because it loads up with toxins, pathogens, and leftover feces and cocoons, which is both unsanitary and damaging to the colony. Allowing natural bird breaks is another strategy that helps at this level by allowing the queen to rest during periods of dearth and depriving the mites from the brood they need to increase their population. So when you hear beekeepers tell you to feed your bees soft sugar bricks that contain pollen and sugar on a regular basis, or to keep a constant trickle of protein and carbs no matter what's going on outside the hive, what I actually call autofeed and fattening them up artificially, it really does them disserv- it really does a disservice to your bees and it's certainly not sustainable in the long run. So keep that in mind. Other things you can do at this level is make sure to keep strong colonies in low stress environments and not oversplit them at the wrong time of the year and place them in low forage areas and food deserts or areas that are heavy with pesticides, neonicotinoids, and fungicides. Sanitation-wise, it's good to disinfect your tools between yards and colonies and avoid swapping resources with other colonies or yards as much as possible, especially if you see signs of diseases. Oh, and I almost forgot, don't inspect your hives too often, too intrusively, and for too long at a time, because that also makes a huge difference in your colony's well-being. Typically, unless we're doing something specific like requeening or splitting or queen rearing, we don't go into our hives more than about every three weeks, plus or minus one week. Going in every week all season long is actually very stressful and that can really set them back. And keep in mind, you don't have to look for your queen every time you're in there either. Um, In periods of expansion, a calm colony with eggs in your larvae tells you she's there without you having to tear out the bird's nest. And in periods of dearth, a relatively calm, they're going to be a little bit more, you know, feisty because they're hungry sometimes, but a relatively uh, calm colony with little to no brood is not out of the ordinary. So don't stress out and think your queen's queen less automatically. Also, that's why Les and I much, much, much prefer top hives because it does not expose the brood's nests uh, or stress the bees unnecessarily as they barely notice our presence as opposed to getting their entire roof opened at once and letting all the volatile compounds in the bird's nest escape while their carefully controlled temperatures and humidity levels are disrupted. Plus, we find it so much easier to manage bees horizontally. It's really a win-win for us and the bees. So let's talk about level three. Level three is physical and mechanical control, meaning things like solid bottom boards, Uh, potentially traps and barriers, sound, well-insulated equipment, and small entrances. Bees will do better in two-inch lumber hives than they will in one-inch lumber ones. Langstroth hives are probably not the best bet for that one, and that's also why Lass and I always build our top bar hives out of two-inch lumber. Screen bottom boards. Let's talk about screen bottom boards for a second. Screen bottom boards used to be recommended uh, for control of mites because there was a higher drop in mite numbers when using those, especially in conjunction with the um, sticky boards underneath. And you could count them also. 
the screen bottom boards are made out of one eighth of an inch uh, screen that actually do let uh, smaller adult uh, small hive beetles get through. Uh, and it's kind of an open door to that pest. So that kind of is um, kind of leaving the white, the front door wide open to the small hive beetles. Um, it also prevents the colony from carefully and tightly regulating their levels of uh, humidity and temperature. And their volatile compounds tend to escape it a little bit more, which, by the way, attracts the small hive beetles because they can smell them better than uh, with colonies with solid bottom boards and small entrances. The other thing it does is it confuses the bees. Um, a lot of Langstroth hives with screen bottom boards, we see that a lot in the spring, especially um, beekeepers panic because bees start building comb underneath the screen bottom board um, because the bees are confused and, and they just um, congregate underneath there and start building. It can also confuse the queens, the virgin queens that come back from their mating flights. And uh, that's one of the reasons they might build underneath uh, the colony. And last but not least, the bees are master temperature controllers and uh, they carefully regulate their temperatures and humidity levels but they can't do that as efficiently if you do it's kind of it's kind of like leaving the front door open when you're running the ac or the heat in the house you can't do that efficiently you can't keep those temperatures um constant efficiently uh, when you have that white that front door wide open bees will do better uh, a better job at keeping their colonies cool in the win in the summer and warm in the winter if you don't have uh, screen bottom board. Traps and barriers. If you're concerned about small hive beetles, one of the things you can do is place some finely crushed limestone under your hives to interrupt the pupation step of their life cycle as it cuts them up and prevents them from digging into the ground. Or you can use mineral oil traps or swiffer-like sheets to catch and kill adults if the population is too high, but be aware those sheets are also known to catch and kill queens at times. Your best bet is actually to use large, uh, strong colonies that can cover the comb and protect their resources. Level four is biological control, and that level is less researched and proven, as well as often less sustainable over in over the long run. So we don't use it um, because you often need to reapply and uh, the population levels need to be higher to be efficient and make a difference. It entails things like nematodes um, that will eat the small hive beetle larvae into the ground, pseudoscorpions that will eat varomites, uh, bacillus like bacillus thuringiensis Bt that will um, basically uh, prevent uh, wax moss larvae from developing and potentially some fungi and microbes. Level five is chemical control, the one lesson I avoid at all costs. I actually personally have never subjected my bees to those and I have a colony that's almost seven years old and thriving in the wire hive. So don't believe people that tell you that if you don't treat your bees, um, they will die, because that's simply not true. That might be true with treated bees from out of state, but that's just not the case with local untreated bees. 
This level, the chemical level, um, entails things like, of course, the harshest synthetic chemicals with brands such as Apiston, Apivar, Checkmate Plus, but also the still harsh, uh, quote-unquote, so-called soft chemicals that includes um, essential oils like Honey Bee Healthy or Thymol. And finally, the organic acids like oxalic acid, formic acid, and hot beta acids with brands such as Max, uh, Formic Pro, HopGuard, and all that. That's the last resort level of the pyramid, and that really shouldn't be used prophylactically and automatically like it's too, like it too often is, because all these treatments, um, including the so-called organic treatments, all have negative consequences on the superorganism and don't solve the underlying problems, which um, usually actually starts with bad queens. By the way, if you read through the Honeybee Health Coalition's Tool for Vera Management booklet, you'll notice that while most of those treatments don't have much more than 30 to 40% improvement in colony losses, some of them actually don't show an improvement, requeening with local survivor stocks seems to actually be one of the most efficient ways to treat your colony. So why even bother with other treatments? So that was, in a nutshell, the five levels of the Integrated Pest Management Pyramid, the IPM Pyramid. And what I want to say is that we are all uh, free to keep bees whichever way we'd like, and we all have different goals. But it's important to remember that small backyard beekeepers don't have to keep their bees the same way that commercial beekeepers do, and our circumstances are different. Commercial beekeepers tend to uh, put their bees in more stressful environments, and their immune system might be negatively affected, and they might have to rely on treatments to keep their bees alive so that they can do pollination contracts and, and other things. Small backyard beekeepers don't have to keep their bees that way. They can give them a good stress-free environment and they don't have to push them as much. So while backyard beekeepers are still free to treat their bees as they please, I think it's important that people, beekeepers keep in mind that all the treatments on level five uh, will have negative consequences on colonies and even the beekeepers, sometimes quite drastic so what we will do through all future episodes is dive a bit more in depth into all the other reasons why we don't use those treatments, except for requeening, which, by the way, in itself is a treatment, just not uh, the addition of pesticides to the colonies or antibiotics or things like that in our natural, in our natural approach to beekeeping. In the meantime, let's just remember this. By sticking mostly to level one and level two and level three as well, and keeping local untreated bees with good quality queens that are not constantly stressed or pushed to produce, we as beekeepers can all stack the decks in our favor for higher chances of success with our beekeeping adventures. By the way, if you cannot wait and need more details now on the Integrated Pest Management Pyramid and how it can be used for sustainable natural beekeeping, I have a detailed presentation on the subject I'd be happy to send to all who ask. Now, let's switch gears, go practical, and talk seasonal advice in the context of natural beekeeping. As a reminder, all beekeeping is local, and all seasonal management is going to be intimately uh, linked to your local cycles of forage and weather. We are in Austin, so this advice is generally more oriented towards temperate climates, 
at the beginning or just before the main nectar flow. With temperatures being consistently above 60 Fahrenheit or about 15 Celsius, I think, <laughs> I recommend a full inspection if you have not already done so. And what I mean by that is going through your colony down to the bird's nest and most bar frames um, so that you get an idea of what population levels are, how much brood is coming up or not, how much stores are left or coming in, and finally, if the queen is well and laying properly. It's worth noting that those should not be performed much more than once or twice a year and even then be kept to a minimum time because they're highly intrusive and can be quite stressful to a colony. What we see at this time of the yearly cycle is expansion in provision of the ne main nectar flow. It's fueled by lots of pollen coming in and signs of nectar flow picking up here and there. Sometimes it's actually quite, um, quite a good nectar flow already. Winter bees are dwindling in number, and, but queen have resumed laying at a fast pace, so they're going to be replaced pretty soon. We're even seeing some drones being reared, and some colonies already have a lot of cap brood. Honey stores are rather low uh, in some cases, but with nectar coming in, it's allowing some colonies to start building up that beautiful virgin white comb that we all love. And that's exactly what we want to see. And if you don't see that, you might actually have issues you might want to investigate. That also means swarming preparations have started and as soon as all that capped brood emerges and there is an abundance of young bees with um, nest congestion and an increasing lack of space for the queen to lay more eggs, colonies will start rearing queens. Uh, the just-in-case queen cups, those vertical little nubs that you see throughout the combs, will multiply and then they will be filled with royal jelly and start looking frosty and grow in length. At that point, the colony has decided to swarm. So the proactive beekeeper can leverage that swarming instinct to preempt the situation by giving a colony something else to do, by adding drone comb at the edge of the brood's nest, for example, which will give the queen more space to lay, reassigning some of the extra capped brood to boost the colony in need and or make plans for divides and apiary increases. John has already explained before how to split colonies, so I won't get into details again, as the same principles apply. Either you can do a shook swarm, meaning shake all the bees with the existing, um, a lot of the bees with the existing queen and several frames of young bees, uh, preferably on some drone comb, or you can place three to six combs of brood, food, and the queen, the existing queen, in a different hive away from this one leaving the donor colony with eggs and young larvae, nectar and pollen, and enough young bees to rear the new queens. Plus, they're going to get the returning foragers. If you're not sure, um, I would make sure to give both colonies a um, frame of eggs and young larvae if you can spare that for both of them. The best is when you have already queen cells developing, you can leave the donor colony with the queen cells and uh, take the old queen and the uh, extra bees away kind of like simulating the swarming it's like artificial swarming basically before you do that though make sure you have all your equipment available and remember that with tabar hives in particular and horizontal beekeeping in general that's much easier to do since you're not going to play musical frames between boxes for Langstroth hives also remember that if your bees are building brood in the top boxes you might consider adding some space above 
or reverse boxes to bring the now mostly empty box of drone comb on top of the bird's nest. So that's it for today. I hope that you have enjoyed this new episode of the Natural Beekeeping Corner and that you will come back next month for more uh, info on natural beekeeping and seasonal tips. And remember to send me your questions by contacting us through b-mindful.com. For the love of the bees, be mindful, be good. Until next time, bye. Thank you so much, Natalie. I could not have said it better. Thank you again for joining us for another episode of The Hive Jive. Thank you, Natalie, for the natural beekeeping segment. And hopefully everybody will join us next week when maybe we can figure out what exactly happened to Ken. Until then, everybody, be good and bye-bye. The show might be over for now, but the sting won't last long. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to our podcast as we'll be swarming in with new episodes Mondays of each month. Until then, behave yourselves.